0: So we're looking at the person of Joseph during these summer months and uh, up to now we've discovered that Joseph was a spoiled brat, Uh, Joseph was arrogant, he was a spoiled teenager, he had this amazing gift of being able to have dreams and interpret dreams, but he hadn't got any sense between his ears. And he would tell his brothers, he would tell his father how great he was going to be and how they were going to have to bow down in front of him. His brothers were so enamored and so delighted to hear this news that first of all they plotted to kill him and then in the end they decided to sell him into slavery and they took that flipping robe, that amazing technicolour dream coat, they dipped it in blood and they took it back to their dad and they made their dad believe that Joseph, his favourite son, was dead, kaput, finished, finito. That's it. That's where we pick up the story. Joseph has been sold into slavery and ends up in Egypt and he ends up in the care of this person called Potiphar. And he's faced with this dilemma, this choice that we're going to be looking at this evening. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous Christian who was a pastor in Nazi Germany. And uh, he was part of what was called the Confessing Church. He was actually executed by the Nazis in April 1945, just a few weeks before the end of the Second World War. And he wrote some amazing books. You might have heard of them. They're called things like The Cost of Discipleship or Life Together or Papers from Prison. And they describe what his take is on what it means to put Jesus first in your life. For him, it meant martyrdom. For him, it meant death. But one of his smaller works is a 50-page booklet called Temptation. And in this booklet, Bonhoeffer describes the war that is going on in every single one of us who are human beings. He writes this. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over flesh. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or, finally, that strange desire for the beauty of the world of nature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The lust, thus aroused, envelops the mind and will of a person in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. And what Bonhoeffer is describing is those moments in your life and mine when it seems as though we're overwhelmed by a desire to do something that we know is not what God wants us to do. It might be in the whole area of relationships. It might be in the whole area of ambition. It might be in the whole area of status and recognition and achievement. But we're put in a situation where we're tempted to do something, to say things, to react in a way that we know is not the way that Jesus wants us to react but it seems as though our wills and our common sense are completely flooded because of the desire to do this thing. Satan isn't daft. Most of us sin because sin, if we're honest, is enjoyable. I mean, it would be a very strange sort of devil who would make sin unattractive. Sin that's unattractive is really easy to resist. Sin that is enjoyable, sin that's fun, well, that is much harder to resist. And that's what happens in the life of Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers, he ends up in the house of this guy, Potiphar, who is referred to in Genesis as the captain of the guard. That's one translation. A literal translation is chief of executioners. That gives us an insight into who Potiphar really is. He is the captain. He's the head of this elite military squad, perhaps the close protection team for Pharaoh. This is the head of the SAS. This is the head of the Secret Service. This is the head of the close, tight-knit, well-proven military elite who are guarding Pharaoh in his palace. You do not mess with this sort of man. Remember that, because that will be important as we go through this story. Joseph arrives in Potiphar's house, and he starts to demonstrate incredible skill. He's now maturing as a young man. Gone, perhaps, is the arrogance of youth when he thought he was going to be the top dog. But somehow he has this ability. He has this skill and he's quite good at what he's doing. And so he's given areas of responsibility and he gets promoted and gets promoted and gets promoted and gets promoted and gets promoted until the end. He's actually Potiphar's sort of right-hand man. And Potiphar says, I will make you in charge of my household. He sees that Joseph is really good at that and he makes him in charge not just of the household but also of the field and the farm and everything. So everything that Potiphar has he entrusts to Joseph because he sees that Joseph is really good at what he does but he also sees something else. So Jovis is maturing into this talented, hard-working, diligent young man. But now comes the test. Because we're told in Genesis 39 and verse 6 that Joseph was well built and handsome. Now, the Hebrew always understates stuff. So when it says that Joseph was well built and handsome, he was really well built and he was really handsome. Okay? That's what the Hebrew does, It, it underplays the reality. So. Joseph is a bit of a hunk. Joseph would have won Love Island easily. (laughs) Actually, he wouldn't have gone into Love Island, but that's a whole different talk. But Joseph is that sort of figure. He's well built and handsome. And Potiphar's wife notices. And she begins to seduce him. She's not subtle about it, she's very direct. She says, Come to bed with me. I mean, that's not subtle, is it? Come to bed with me. But Joseph refuses. Joseph refuses the first time, Joseph refuses the second time, Joseph refuses the third time, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. Potiphar's wife does not give up because the inference is that day after day she would come to Joseph and try and seduce him. But Joseph refuses because for him it's a question of trust, it's a question of integrity. Potiphar has given everything to him And he can't disabuse, well, he can't abuse that trust. He can't damage the relationship with Potiphar. He can't throw into doubt his integrity. But above all, verse 9, he says this, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin, not just against Potiphar, not just against my position, but he says against God. That is the most important relationship even now in Joseph's life. It's not his status, it's not his position, but actually it's his relationship with God. And yet we're told in Genesis 39 and verse 10 that Potiphar's wife persists day after day. She comes to Joseph and tries to seduce him and it goes on for days, it goes on perhaps for months. And then there comes one particular day and now she's getting quite clever, some would say perhaps desperate. She sent everybody else away out of the house. Nobody else is in the house. There are no servants in the house. Potiphar isn't in the house. There's only one person in the house, and that is Potiphar's wife. And Joseph walks in. Come to bed with me, she says again. Joseph again says, no, Now, at this point, it would have been easy for Joseph to have been given in. It would have been so easy on that particular day because nobody else would have known if Joseph had succumbed to the charms of Potiphar's wife. Potiphar wouldn't have known because his wife wouldn't have told him. Certainly, Joseph's parents back wherever they were wouldn't have known, his brothers wouldn't have known, they thought he was dead none of the servants would have known because they've been sent away. It would only have been between Potiphar's wife and Joseph. It would have been so easy for Joseph to have given in. And he hadn't even read Genesis because it hadn't been written. He didn't know that God was preparing him for leadership. He didn't know that he would end up as prime minister Of Egypt. He didn't know that this was one of those tests that often comes to people that God is calling into leadership, and their leadership will often stand or fall as to what sort of choice they decide to make. Joseph again says no. She grabs his cloak, not his multicolored amazing dream coat, that's long gone. But she grabs his cloak and he runs away. He runs away naked because he's so desperate to get out of that situation. She screams, maybe out of humiliation, maybe frustration and anger, and she falsely accuses him of rape. We're in hashtag me too territory here, but perversely or unusually it's the woman who has the power rather than than often is the case the man the man joseph a slave has no power no status no rights potiphar's wife the woman the elite she has all the power she makes this false accusation against him and as is often the case sadly the powerful (coughs) prevail now, maybe there's a clue in the text that perhaps Potiphar doesn't believe what's happened. He doesn't believe what his wife has said about Joseph because, firstly, he does not kill Joseph. This is the chief of executioners. I put it to you that if Potiphar really thought that Joseph had tried to sleep with his wife and tried to rape his wife, that would have been it for Joseph. But not only does Potiphar not kill Joseph, but he's put in a prison, but not any old prison, not the prison for common criminals. He's put in the prison where political prisoners go, the royal prison, the soft prison, the nice prison. Think of Julie Assange holed up in that embassy for years, being looked after. It's not really a prison, but that's where Joseph ends up. Two points that I just want to pull out of this story. The first is that, yes, Potiphar observed that Joseph was really good at his job. But also, Potiphar observed something else. Potiphar observed, and this phrase occurs four times in this chapter, that God was with Joseph. It occurs in verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, and verse 23. Potiphar sees that God is with Joseph. Now, that doesn't mean that Joseph avoids pain. It doesn't mean that Joseph avoids suffering. It doesn't mean that Joseph avoids difficulty. It doesn't mean that Joseph avoids anything that's challenging or tough or painful or hard. In fact, quite the reverse, because he ends up in prison for doing the right thing. Sold into slavery, but now away from his family, his brothers and his father, he begins to develop these other gifts. He gets the chance to learn about leadership and management of a household before he's asked to run the country, and he does really well. Potiphar approves of him and promotes him, but now falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. The question is, how will Joseph respond? One author who's looked at people who were often called into leadership refers to these incidents or choices as integrity checks or faith challenges. There are those moments when you're faced with a choice and perhaps your very calling will determine on how you choose. The whole course of your life may change on whether you say yes or whether you say no, whether you turn left or whether you turn right. Now, the Christian faith is not like snakes and ladders. If you make a mistake, it doesn't mean that you have to go back to the start and begin or again. God is able to take us from where we are. But the reality is that often, when God is working in someone's life, there will come those moments where you and I have to make choices. We know what God wants us to choose, but God doesn't force us, He leaves it up to us. I used to tell a story often on the Alpha Course when we did uh, live talks on the Alpha Course and I'm a bit reluctant to, to tell it because it, it makes me out to be a hero. That, that's not the intention of the story, but I had a very similar episode to, to Joseph when I was 19. When I was 19, I'd been a Christian for about 18 months, and I was working in the south of France for Eurocamp, uh, one of the sort of camping holidays uh, firms. Um, And I hadn't seen another Christian for about four months. And I was a courier on a campsite, and on one particular night, there was a lot of drink consumed by a particular woman. And she was a wife of one of the holidaymakers, and she came to my tent at about midnight, and basically she used the same words as Potiphar's wife, and in that moment I had a choice to make. Would it have been enjoyable? Probably. Would anybody else have known? Probably not. But I had a choice to make. And she basically made it very clear, even though it was very dark and she was very drunk, obviously, what was on offer but I had a choice to make. And I will never forget the moment when I was shaking and I said, thank you, but I'm a Christian. And I've never seen someone sober up so quickly. She just sobered up almost dramatically and said, you're a Christian. And I said, yes. And she said, well, that spoils everything. And I said why? And she said, well, I used to go out with a few Christian guys, and I know that if you're a Christian, we're not going to sleep together tonight. And I said, well, how do you know these Christian guys? And they said, oh, they go to this church near where I work. In fact, I'm a nurse. I work in casualty. I work in the emergency department. We then had an hour-long conversation about faith and about the person of Jesus and why she struggled to believe in Jesus because of what she'd seen when she was working in the emergency department of that hospital in London. But I was faced with that choice. It would have been very easy to give in, but I decided that I had to do what I knew God was asking me to do. So where are you faced with a choice? And what decision will you make? Sexual sin is not worse than any other sin. There's no league table of sin. But the reality is that sexual sin is often more damaging. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament speaks about sexual sin, their consequences being more damaging and more powerful because they're sins against the body rather than other things. So there's no league table of sin, but if you do fall in this particular area then there might well be consequences for you. Your temptation might come in different forms. For you it might be something like money, it might be a house, a car, might be something personal, status, authority, power, control or recognition or achievement, but it might come in the whole area of sex. It might come in the whole area of pornography lust, an affair, a one-night stand. It might seem harmless. Nobody else will know apart from you. But the collateral damage will be enormous, perhaps to your marriage if you're married, perhaps to a relationship, perhaps to the other person's relationships, perhaps to your self-image or self-worth. I'll never forget when I first arrived at this church, uh, Michael Maudsley, who was the, um, the, the rector, uh, the leading sort of pastor at the time uh, in the church, and, and he just said very clearly on one Sunday evening that he reckoned it would take Ps and Gs between five and six years to recover if either he or I had an affair with somebody who was not our wife. And I remember sitting, I'd only been at Ps and Gs for about a month, and I thought, Whew, okay, he's up the stakes now, but it stayed with me 20-odd years later. Sexual sin is not worse than any other, but the effects can be more powerful and long-lasting. And we need to be ready for those moments, that moment that Bonhoeffer described, when the powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. And we need to make those decisions as to what we're going to decide before we find ourselves in those situations. Because, I don't know about you, if we don't, then the danger is that if we find ourselves in one of those situations, we will find ourselves overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the desire to do that thing that we know is not what God wants us to do. So in essence, it comes down very simply to what decisions will you and I make? How are we going to live our lives this week, this month, this year? Faced with a situation, faced with a dilemma, faced with a possibility, what will you do and what will I do? Will we do what we know if we're honest? We know what God wants us to do? Or will we decide to ignore that and just to go with the flow, to go with what seems right, to go with what seems attractive, to go with what seems enjoyable? At the heart of the Christian faith, there's this amazing verse in the New Testament that speaks about Jesus being tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he was without sin. Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus was tempted in every way. There is nothing that you have faced or that I have faced that Jesus has not been faced with first. There's no area of life where Jesus didn't say to God the Father, I think I'll just miss that bit out. There wasn't any temptation that because he was God's son, Jesus just breezed through it and said, well, that was easy. Because, yes, he was God's son, but he was also fully human. Now, I don't know about you, but with me, temptation and its power will grow. And grow and grow and grow, either until I resist it and name it for what it is, when often it, it becomes devoid of its power, or I give in to it. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, there's a one verse at the end of that incident that says, And the devil left him until an opportune time. What that means is that for the next three years. Jesus battled with temptation. Temptation not to do the will of the Father, not to do what God the Father wanted him to do, not to live the life that God wanted him to live. And so for Jesus, the temptation and the power of temptation grew and 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 grew. And that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus agonizes and says, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from my lips. And he's described as sweating drops like blood. But then he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. All of us in this room this evening, without exception, will have made wrong choices. All of us will have made wrong decisions. All of us will have found ourselves in situations where it was easier to give in. All of us we'll make decisions perhaps even this week that will have implications and consequences and ramifications for us and for other people. But the amazing fact is that if we're honest with God, if we come back to God tonight, if we ask his forgiveness, then God is able to take us now and give us a fresh start. He's able to forgive us to cleanse us, to put us, as it were, back on our feet and set us on the right path. Even if tomorrow we make the wrong choice again. Because he loves us. And he was tempted in every way, just as we are. He knows what it feels like. And that's why he died on the cross. Let's pray together.